Um, hello, and uh, welcome to a new episode of Africa as a Country Talk. Uh, I'm Sean Jacobs, and I'm streaming from Brooklyn in New York. My co-host, Will Shoki, could not be here today. Uh, he'll be back next week, so you'll have to, unfortunately, <laughs> deal with me today. Today is a momentous day. It is Africa Day, 25th of May, 1963, was the founding of the Organization of African Unity, which is the forerunner to the, what we now today known as, know as the African Union. This, was, this happened in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and 32 nations were there um, for this partic particular meeting. The hooting you're hearing from outside, I think that, that is in uh, celebration of today. That's just New York traffic. AIC Talk is a weekly talk and interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday um, at 7 p.m. East African time, 5 p.m. in Dakar, or 6 p.m. in Johannesburg. Our show is produced as always by Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. This is episode 39. We're getting old here, We're getting to middle age. On today's show, uh, informally, we call this our monthly cultural show, or the culture show. We focus on two things. First, a new exhibition, a virtual exhibition on the black experience in South Africa and the United States, and a new film on a Libyan uh, dissident. First, we interview Cedric Brown and Odysseus Serinja. Cedric is the creator of this virtual exhibition called The Shape of Blackness, which offers perspective on the black experience by South African and American visual artists. One country where there's a black majority and the other, which is a black minority nation. Uh, and then Odysseus Serinja, who is one of the exhibition uh, curators, along with uh, Trevor Parham. Um, he is based in Johannesburg, where he is uh, part of his, I think he runs a gallery Momo. I'll get that right in a minute. Um, then secondly, we chat with the editor and director, Khalid Samas, who made the film, The Colonel's Stray Dogs, a film about his dad, Ashur, who lives in London and played a leading role in the resistance against Muammar Gaddafi's one-party repressive rule in Libya, and more on that later. On last week's show, we featured South African writers and poems, poets who read poems by Palestinian writers or some of their own work making those connections. The program was in solidarity with Palestinians. The poets were Mahmoud Al-Shair, Basman Darawi, Sipokazi Jonas, Rustum Kuzain, and Heidi Khrunabaum. We were also joined by Catherine Halls and Adania Shibli, who helped with translations and Jay Patha, who chaired the episode. The episode was presented in collaboration with Penn South Africa. That episode is now available on our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our Patreon, Patreon for all the episodes from our archive. Remember to hit the like button below and subscribe on our YouTube, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon where you can help fund the work of Africa as a country in general. So now after I've gotten all the formal stuff um, out of the way, and just for those people, if you missed my comment at the outset, uh, if you're missing the, the world stands, uh, Will can unfortunately not be here today, but he'll be back uh, next week. So let's get down to business. Now to today's program. First up, we are joined by Cedric Brown and Odysseus Serinja. I already mentioned them, but I'm gonna do a proper introduction now. Cedric is an Atlantic Fellow, a senior fellow uh, of the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equality. 
and is an award-winning social impact leader. Odysseus Serinja is a South African artist and designer and is the director of Gallery Momo Johannesburg. Together, they worked on what is known as The Shape of Blackness, a virtual exhibition that explores racial politics and experiences in the United States and South Africa. The exhibition lasted, I think, for about two months. They're going to correct me in a minute. Uh, welcome, Cedric and Odysseus. And they both wear really nice shirts today, putting me to shame. <laughs> but we'll move on, we'll move on uh, from that. Thank um, you so much for having us. There's no shame in your game. And thank you indeed. Thank you. I come with the black. I'm wearing the black. The bl I'm wearing right. the black today. That's Cedric, right. With a right? statement. With a statement, I know, right? College to all. <laughs> That's right. Um, right. So to start with you, can you tell us about the genesis of this project um, and what you wanted to achieve with it? Yes, indeed. Uh, so I am a senior fellow with the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity. And as part of uh, our fellowship experience, we had the opportunity to uh, apply for funding for projects that would help to further some of the work that we were interested in doing as individual fellows or in collaboration with one another. And I have an ongoing interest in the art and the arts as a vehicle uh, toward a greater kind of African diasporic liberation uh, and ways to use the arts to try to kind of lift up our beauty and ingenuity so that we can use that as a tool to fight against uh, white supremacy and some of the everyday microaggressions that folks in the African diaspora face. And so I wanted to figure out, well, how, what, what can I do here? Would it be a festival? Would it be uh, something that focuses on uh, Afrofuturism? I had a number of different ideas. And that they ended up kind of coming together, coalescing in a virtual art exhibition that was going to use a platform called uh, Exhibit to uh, promote and, and display pieces of artwork from uh, artists in South Africa and the US, which are the two nations that, um, that the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity draws from currently to comment on the state of contemporary blackness. So I took this idea to Trevor Parham, who is my longtime buddy and collaborator, uh, who is the owner of a fantastic gallery and workspace in Oakland, creative space in Oakland, California, called Oak Stop. And Trevor was like, yeah, let's do it. So we were able to start to shape what the shape of blackness was going to be and then uh, bring in Odysseus because we were in need of a South African partner and Odysseus has just been such a dream to work with and uh, help us to bring this vision to fruition. Long answer, but... <laughs> Oh, Sean, I think you're on mute. I, I was on mute because there's a lot of hooting outside. As I, as I was saying, people must be celebrating Africa Day. Um, now, I'm just saying, like, um, of course, the, there's the link between South Africa and the US with Atlantic Fellows. But can you say a little bit more, Odysseus, on why this, the, this kind of the connection between South Africa 
um, and the US. And, and, I, and I, as I said at the outset of the program, you have one country where there's like a black majority, it's a black majority country, and the other there's a, there's a black minority. So people, people can make those connections, but not always obviously. Can you just talk about some of the parallels between the two places? I know Cedric has sort of alluded to some of them already. Yeah, thank you, Sean. And I just want to say thank you to Cedric for uh, what he just said previously in terms of like, you know, getting me on board. I was really, really honored when I was approached to be part of the team that would bring this exhibition to life. And, you know, in, instantly there were synergies in terms of like the vision that we have uh, and also our interest in using art as a vehicle, you know, that brings about change. And, you know, with South Africa being a black majority and the U.S. being a black minority country, however, you know, the, 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 the struggles that black people face in both spaces seem to parallel quite nicely for us to be able to put those alongside and spark this dialogue in terms of what is blackness and what is blackness in the 21st century, especially after South Africa overcoming a you know, apartheid and a long history of colonialism, not necessarily overcome colonialism, but seeing what also was happening in the US with the wake of uh, George Floyd, you know, being killed brutally at the hands of, you know, the police. So it was something that, you know, that seemed like, you know, the apartheid and the injustices against black, black bodies was never quite done away with. And, you know, this exhibition came at the right time to sort of bring about this conversation to the front. You know, we don't ever want, you know, the conversation about black liberation and black justice, you know, being put to the back burner of history. It's something that we constantly have to fight and face and deal with on a daily basis, you know, at the, at the hands of white supremacy. Until that notion of white supremacy and there is justice for black bodies across, you know, the entire uh, world, then maybe, you know, the shape of blackness is an exhibition that wouldn't necessarily need to happen. Just by the way, one of the things I've, I've always found interesting is like the, the connections between the US and South Africa run deep. For example, both were initially colonized by the Dutch. Like if you think of New York with the Dutch West Indies company, you think South Africa with the Dutch East Indies, you, you think of kind of the same way that they, the US, South Africa actually took lessons about the Bantustans from the US. So there's just many, there's so many lessons. And even Jim Crow, in a way, was basically apartheid. So there's these, there's these connections that are, that are running deep between these two yes. places that, that a lot of people often don't pick up on, right? That is that's the right. truth. Yeah. That's right. And Sean, that's one of the reasons why I thought that one theme across both countries would actually be resonant because of that, those kind of shared experiences that may have emerged from different histories, but came from the same place in terms of the oppressive systems that mm -hmm. were kind of structured around people of the African descent or Africans um, in each nation. Uh, I knew that there could be a, a response that artists would be able to make some kind of a visual commentary about uh, kind of what what blackness in response to those systems means. Mm -hmm. Can you both say more a little bit of because we see some of the images on the screen now? Say a little bit about these artists. Like who 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 were the artists that that participated in in, in this exhibit? 
Um, well, I was requested to look after and to put together a, an ensemble of South African artists. And so for me, what was very, very important was to look at artists and emerging voices within the South African art space who spoke about the Black experience in a very sort of nuanced way, but also in a very strong way where they have conviction in what they're saying. So in my selection of artists, I included artists like Teko Bushimani, Tepiso Moroba, Lebohang Mutawu, Lebu Thoka, and Helena Uambame. And I felt that in this selection of artists, you know, I had a great composite of artists that would have something to say about what it means for them to be black and their black experience, and then also what they want to say to the rest of the world using their mediums. And it varied from artists who looked at abstract, but also you looked at uh, realism and figurative art, but also, you know, um, me other mediums that were not necessarily traditional. Um, and it just felt very cohesive in the sense that we could put them alongside the American artists and we could have a great dialogue in terms of the experience that they, 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 that they draw from uh, as black people in South Africa. A lot of it was very spiritual and a lot of it was very internal. And, you know, sometimes when there's a lot of noise outside with, you know, the protests that were happening. It was also great to bring people into a space where they could reflect and, you know, internalize, you know, their experience and then also go out in the world with a little bit more uh, of a, a fed soul, you know, to fight for their, for their rights. And, you know, the American uh, uh, contingency was curated by um, Trevor, who did a great job in bringing some really amazing artists, such as Aaron Bathia, Courageous, Nicole Dixon, Michonne Sanders, Brett Sims, and Abba Yehuda. And the, to, just to sort of follow up on that, you sort of you sort of said a little bit about that. Maybe Cedric can also reflect on this. When these artists looked, you know, when, when, what did they see when they, when they thought or, or looked at blackness? Oh, they saw worthiness and beauty and richness and history and, and the, the multi-dimensionality multi of what it means to be human and what it means to be human with this kind of complexion and or coming from certain communities that have a, a, a history and cultural experience together. Um, it, it, to me, demonstrate, the artist to me demonstrated joy because there were very few pieces that were um, actually depicting some element of pain. I think many of the pieces, if not almost all of them together, were celebratory, were, were celebrating some kind of aspect or element about, um, well, again, our humanity. And uh, Abba Yehuda, one of the, the artists, you, you see him there um, hanging He's there on the screen now hanging the uh, physical exhibition, uh, which is uh, up at Oak Stop. There are, are a number of California artists who have their, um, their work there. Abba actually challenged us around what blackness even means uh, and how in order to transcend blackness that comes from uh, this oppositional uh, kind of racism in order for there to be whiteness, there has to be blackness. In order to transcend that and to look at our true kind of culture and uh, of 
history and uh, worthiness as humans. We have to go to the joy and the stories that make us entirely human and, um, and beautiful. And so there's more to be said about that. Um, but I think many of the pieces speak to this kind of joy and celebration and love of uh, Black folk and Blackness. Not to put a damper on things, but the, um, our next guest actually um, in, a minute, in a few minutes is uh, it's, it's a film about exile. And one of the, one of the themes which, which is part also of the black experience, both in the US and in South Africa, is of not feeling at home, not feeling like you belong, not feeling respected. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Because I, I know you're saying that so much of the work was about celebration, this kind of introspect, introspection, around spirituality, um, but how do, how do some, can you, can you say something about how these artists come to terms with that part of the experience, that fear experience of alienation? I mean, all the, all the violence, right? The violence that you mentioned about George Floyd, about Black Lives Matter, and in South Africa, also various kinds of police violence, student protests, et cetera. Like how do these artists like deal with that? If I may, I, I feel like that's part of the subtext from which uh, folks op have to operate because so much of uh, the the what I will generalize as a contemporary Black experience, at least in um, at least in multicultural nations where there has been a, a white presence and European colonialism, so much of the Black experience comes from these kinds of uh, racialized transgressions against Black folk. And so the, the recognition of our beauty has to come out of the narrative around the, the pain that we face, the, the oppression that we face. And so looking at any of these images, we can understand that our beauty is innate our beauty and ingenuity on one hand is innate, but it's also in reaction to the stories that tell us that we are not these things, the stories that tell us that we're less than, the stories that, that kind of lift up oppression of uh, African descended people. So I really feel like we, we're able to see the best of both. We're able to see the innateness, the organic kind of uh, wonderfulness of uh, our folks and we're able to see how this is channeled into a, a strong response against the forces that the, the kind of headwinds that we face in formerly colonialized countries that seem to uh, worship Europeanness. I don't know, Odysseus, what do you think? Yeah, and just 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 to add to that, you know, like looking at the overall body of work that was represented, you know, in this exhibition, there was a sense of coming home, and there's a sense of coming home not only physically but to self, back to self, back to blackness, and black to celebrating that. And you know, it came at a time where you know we're talking about you know uh, reparations and 
people finding or being given back their lands that they were, they were dispossessed of. And you know, a lot of this work spoke about coming back to our essence as black people and owning that and not necessarily always reflecting to whiteness in order for us to contextualize ourselves in the world in the world. It dispelled the myth that you know we as black people are a monolith. We are diverse in our feelings, in our existence, in how we experience the world and all of that came through in the diversity of the artworks and the narratives that they drew inspiration from. So that for me was one of the overriding themes that I picked up from all of these artists. I have one more question, which is probably to get to the, the point of the, the making of this kind of work, which is that this was all virtual. I mean, this is in the background. <laughs> in the background, and I was talking with Odysseus before the program. Is he trying to like uh, work himself out of a work because he represents yes. you represent like a, a physical gallery? Can you talk a little yes. bit about Odysseus and then Cedric? Perhaps you can also. What have you What have you learned about this kind of of, of making exhibitions this way, like, and also, like, what does this mean? What does this mean for doing this work online? What are the what are the good stuff, uh, and what are the unknowns here that this, this kind of age that we entry? Well, we are in a virtual uh, recording studio. We're able to reach far more people than we could ever reach just being on a local radio station. Uh, so, working in a virtual Exhibit, exhibition space was absolutely fantastic and also challenging in, in a sense, but also liberating in the sense that I did not have to worry about foot traffic walking through the door. If you have the link, you'll be able to view the exhibition at any given time of the day, wherever you are. So this is quite an exciting and a bold move, I think, for exhibitions. And in terms of me as, uh, as a curator working in a physical space, I am happy to work myself out of a job. I'm, I embrace the future and all that it has to offer. This is a, a platform that could reach anybody. If you have internet connection and some data, you'd be able to tap into this and maybe your world would be changed. Well, I certainly hope that Odysseus doesn't work himself out of a job, <laughs> that there will be, that there's going to be a need in both the, the physical space, real-time space, and uh, the virtual space uh, for this kind of curation and shaping of uh, stories that we want to be able to share and tell. Uh, I think about this as uh, almost uh, akin to how when ebooks came on the scene, that there was this great kind of fervor around, oh my gosh, our library is going to be gone, our bookstore is going to be gone. And no, we see the need for both because people like to receive information in both modalities. So virtual spaces, as, Odys uh, as Odysseus said, enable us to reach many more people. But the physical exhibition enables people to get into a space together and share an experience in a, a, an immediate time frame. It's like how we used to go to the movies together, which someday we will <laughs> yes. be able to go to yes. again and share that experience in this physically confined space and then be able to talk about it together. So it's very localized. So we wanna still be able to have that localized experience and the virtual experience just supplements it and augments it and gives it a new kind of reach. So I'm, I'm excited about both and was really 
and loved being able to do this in a virtual space, especially since the pandemic called for us thinking differently about how this could be brought about. Just the last question. Uh, of course, this is not the last time you're going to work together. So, is there like a is there like is there like the shape of blackness too coming or? <laughs> We're currently thinking about it. Hopefully, hopefully. You know what? I, I'll go ahead and put it out into the universe. I, I haven't talked with uh, with Odysseus or Trevor about this, but I, I would love to see in the next round, us be able to reach artists who are in different parts of the diaspora. I'm particularly interested in, uh, in other African descended people who are in Latin America, as an example, uh, Africans who have also moved to other parts of the world. I, I understand there's a community in Iran. I understand that there's a growing community of Africans in Australia. So what, what does Africanness, Blackness, look like in those parts of the world? How is it celebrated? So I would love to be able to get to that someday. Yeah. I think what we're going to go. What are you going to say? What are you saying, Odysseus? What, C what Cedric says. What Cedric says. This, uh, this, that's, a great, that's a great answer. Thank you very much, both um, Cedric and Odysseus. This was wonderful. Um, and as somebody said in the comments, the, the visuals are brilliant, so people can actually still see it. Um, I think we put the link on the screen where you can actually still go see the exhibit online, even though it, it's, it's, it's not showing anymore. So I, I will add really quickly, hopefully we'll be able to get the virtual tour, which we were seeing some of. Since the exhibition the, in the virtual space is now closed, we put together a virtual tour that's a video, maybe a 16 minute long uh -huh. video that actually goes through each of the paintings uh, on screen. So hopefully we'll be able to link that through in very short order so people can still have the experience. So that's actual. That's excellent news. Thank you very much for coming by. I really Thank appreciate you. It. This was great, Thank and I love the shirts. I do love the shirts. I have to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna wear my Madiba shirt next time, next week. All right, the challenge. All right. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you Sean. Don't look. Thank okay. you, Sean. Okay. See you guys. Bye bye. So next we're gonna talk to the director and editor um, Khalid Samas. Um, Khalid lives in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, and he has edited credits on a number of films that you may have seen, films like Scenes from a Dry City, which is about the water crisis in Cape Town, a beautiful short film, Sound of Mass, which was about, uh, which is a, a, about Mozambique, uh, culture and politics, Not in My Neighborhood, it's about gentrification, Strike a Rock, which is about the, the South African EFF and, and um, its women, members of parliament and uh, films about art like Black President, and then finally also a film about a film called Action Commandant um, about a 1980s um, popular political euro, anti-political euro in Cape Town. So the current film that he's making called The Colonel Stray Dogs um, is his second film that he's directing by himself. His first film that he directed was called um, The Imam and I, and that film was released in uh, 2011. So this, this is the film that he's making 10 years later. Both films mime that he's, you know, the films that he's responsible for, mime his family's history. The Imam and I was, a, was about the death of his maternal grandfather, um, Imam Haron, a very popular anti-apartheid cleric who was murdered by apartheid police um, in September 1969. The Colonel Stray Dogs follows his father's story, so that was the story related to his mother. Uh, Asher Samas left Libya in the early 1970s. 
Uh, so I think he actually left in the early 1960s. I'm wrong about that. In 1969, Muammar Gaddafi had come to power through a coup, overthrowing the Libyan King Idris. Gaddafi wanted to implement a form of Arab socialism, but his regime was soon marked by repression and death. Outside Libya, of course, Gaddafi became known for his pan-Africanism and his support of various African liberation movement. Asher Samas, as I said, ended up in London, where he met uh, Khalid's mom and started a family, but that's also where he became deeply involved for at least 40 years in the fight to overthrow Gaddafi and help build a democratic system in Libya based on Arab Muslim principles. At one point, Gaddafi had a bounty of one million US dollars on Asher's head. Gaddafi's regime, and this is of course new, we don't, you know, we can't hide, there's no spoilers here. It, the regime eventually fell in 2011 and Asher returned briefly to Libya as an advisor to the new government. So the film, The Colonel's Stray Dogs, explores Asher's past and Khalid's questions, but it also chronicles uh, Asher's attempts to go back to, Lib to Libya. As Khalid says in the film, and I quote, for the 40 years he was in exile in England, it felt like killing Gaddafi was more important to him than living with us. So Khalid couldn't be available today. He also had, he had some uh, personal, uh, more celebratory things to deal with. So we pre-recorded the interview with him. And so we're gonna play the interview um, for the rest of the show. So I hope you enjoy uh, the, the interview and I'll be back at the end um, just to come and say goodbye. Welcome uh, back. Uh, I also want to welcome to the show Khalid Samis. Khalid, welcome to the show. Nice to see you all. Assalamu alaikum. Salaikum salam, as they say. As they say, Cape Town. As they say, as they say. I said with my Cape Town accent there. Um, Khalid, we, we, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here today. So I want to just start off. I want to get into the questions. How did you become a filmmaker? Uh, okay, a filmmaker. I mean, thanks also, you know, Africa is a country I've been a big fan since the beginning. So this is like um, a milestone for me in, in my kind of career in life, career. Uh, how did I become a filmmaker? Well, I studied film. I studied film in London, uh, Middlesex University, but it was more theoretical course. And so I needed extra practical. This was in the mid 90s, 94, I started started my degree in 97, I graduated. And so I did a couple of practical courses and then I started working in TV um, in, in London, in Soho from 97 till 2004, five. And then I left that world to come to Cape Town um, and to make the film about my grandfather, Imam and I. And then I, that was it. That was, I guess, the beginning of it, you know, stepping out in that way. Which is interesting because you, you've got this sort of prolific background as a film editor and you've edited films on a number of different subjects. But mm -hmm. when it comes to your filmmaking, it usually addresses 
very personal subjects um out of interest why is that the case yeah well i think it's like i can't when it comes to making films i can only really make a film about something that i'm um not obligated but obliged in a way and have this kind of strong personal collection connection with um and so through the course of making the imam film i started to kind of prefer the editing space so i i'm i'm happy to help directors and filmmakers storytellers to construct their stories but when it comes to making films myself i couldn't find myself like looking for a new story kind of thing right so my grandfather my dad have these kind of lives and i in a way it's the exploration of them right with the skills that i know and because they take so long i'm not going to you know i'm i i'm not going to make uh i'm not going to i don't have that leisure to always be making a new film right but i right, yeah. within the editing i'm doing that yeah there's like, i think there's like a 10 year gap there's like a 10 year gap between the two yeah. films <laughs> i got time for that <laughs> 2011 for the killing of the imam and now the imam and i and now it's uh, it's uh, 2021 so this film the the colonel's uh, stray dogs um yeah. just before i ask you about it what the title just just to explain for some people i don't really want the film that becomes clear but what is the title what is the title referred to well i mean it's uh it's the 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 formal title that gaddafi gave to his opponents abroad and at home during the 80s so he kind of set this interdict to to all of libyan home and abroad to liquidate and eliminate the stray dogs right who are basically those who worked in the government and then worked side to work against Gaddafi or who were against Gaddafi from the beginning so that was kind of a formal term by him to the, those who were opposed to him and it stick it stuck and then this before we get into the film for people who don't know libyan history um Well, can you just like give us like a kind of a I know it's going to sound like a potted history. <laughs> can you yeah. can you give people just a sense uh what was the out like for ordinary Libyans like your father um when Gaddafi came to power and how that changed mm. and he's also becoming politically involved because I'm asking that because you're making this film about your dad and we'll get into that in a minute but you're also making this film about some there's also another character in the film apart from yourself and your mom which is Gaddafi uh, and this is someone who Africans are divided about so can you just kind of as as someone who's you know who's part Libyan can you just lay that out a little bit because when we when, <laughs> yeah. we, when we told people we're going to interview you there were some people like who is this website why are they saying this about Gaddafi not everybody <laughs> but some of the viewers so there's a sense in which i think maybe it might be useful just to provide some some of that history to to viewers yeah uh, it's a funny thing because you know a lot of african support and lots of global south support supported and support gaddafi and his ideas um so so when i i mean the film is not against gaddafi it's not anti gaddafi but it's just showing the relationship of one of his opponents right and that kind of life outside that so it's kind of an an, an alternate look at history of modern libya always when whenever we see films or talk about libya it's about gaddafi and it's about the um the uh eccentricity of gaddafi and it's this fetishization of him 
right? And what he stood for and the female bodyguards and all that. That's why the film, I think, will be interesting to kind of not work against that, but look at Libya in, 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 in a different way, you know? Um, so, I mean, Libya had the Italians, right? In the early 1900s, and there was, there was a genocide, right? Like a third of the population of the men were killed. And so after they left, then it became this kind of family of royalty that was made up from these tribes, the Sanusi government, um, and they were kind of more closely aligned with the West at that time. This is like the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So oil was kind of coming up, up then, and these kind of democratic relationships were being made under the guise of this um, monarchy. Um, and at the same time, in the Middle East, we have the rise of kind of the socialist left um, rise through people like Nasser and many other governments around and the you know post-colonial kind of reworking of what do we do, right, in the Middle East and same, I guess, in Africa as countries. We don't want to be kind of in that democratic capitalist way. So often socialist. <clears throat> but the monarchy uh, always kind of go towards the West and kind of those economic interests, interests anyway, the world over. And so, um, you know, like all these countries, there were these military coups and there was a coup where this young, um, uh, good looking, uh, new hope of the left uh, uh, military commander came up as the leader of this, this coup. For like about five, six days, no one knew who was behind it in 69, right? September 69. So my dad at that time was a student and he grew up in, in the desert, in the kind of south of Libya in a town called Ghirian. And it kind of mountainous, very dry uh, area. And he grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a dwelling in the ground, right? A clay, uh, like a cave dwelling in a way. I think they call it a troglodyte or something. So they have these rooms and he grew up kind of walking everywhere. He was the 10th child of 10. Um, and he and many of his, some of his siblings passed away and he was the youngest. So him, he grew up with his mum in this kind of space. His dad died when he was quite young. Um, and that's the Libya he grew up in, right? And then Tripoli was the closest town. So he went there for kind of initial studies. And then he, he went to the UK to study aeronautical engineering, right, in Brighton in the, uh, the mid-60s. So he was a student, right, uh, late, uh, in his late teens, um, early 20s, and then Gaddafi took over. But my dad and all those kind of other colleagues he was studying with had this influence, uh, kind of a strong Islamic influence and a strong political influence from like the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the brotherhood, Muslim brotherhood of that time which is also quite popular, right? As well as the socialist thing. Um, so Gaddafi is on, uh, on one hand, he took up the mantle of Nasser and he wanted the socialist Libya. And my dad was on the kind of group who wanted more kind of like a Islamic um, understanding of how we govern our affairs. All post-colonial, all kind of anti-colonial, but um, quite different camps. So my dad from the beginning was opposed to Gaddafi um, and, yeah, kind of proved, you know, a few years into Gaddafi's kind of reign, um, he became that dictator that we all know and love. Um, so, yeah, so then that relationship kind of maintained that way. It's interesting because, I mean, this is a film not only about your father's relationship with Gaddafi, but also your relationship with your father and you seeing Gaddafi 
through your father's eyes. And, you know, one of the sort of main quotations of the film, and it runs through the trailer as well, is when you say for the 40 years he was in exile in England, it felt like killing Gaddafi was more important to him than living with us. So it's a film about your father's political exile, but also about your relationship with him. I mean, what was, what was that like? What is that relationship? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's the relation, it's um, when he heard, when he saw the film and he heard that line, because it's early in the film, he um, was kind of, I think, taken because he, I don't think he expected it to be a personal film in this way. I think he expected kind of this political historical telling of the front and the opposition to Gaddafi and the story, I guess, of modern Libya. Um, so when I say that to him, it sets up this relationship that's kind of a little bit distant and expected as this kind of Arab, you know, the Arab dad and the kind of English son, how there's not so much intimacy, but there's openness and there's progressiveness. Um, and so that I think kind of feeds its way into the film or through the film and we, I hope we kind of get closer. So in a way, I mean, the film definitely is a way for me to have those conversations about how we grew up with my dad, which I never had before. Um, and so I guess that's, you know, that is my relationship with my dad. I'm quite loving. There's no kind of confrontation, but there are these questions, these unasked and unanswered questions that I think many of us have. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I remember I spoke to you, right? We, we had a chat um, right after I saw the film, and I told you that to the extent to which I really loved that part of the film, this kind of the awkwardness between the, the, <laughs> the beginning between the two of you, because you're, you're standing. Actually, the image we just put on screen is of the two of you kind of standing and looking at documents. And as the film kind of progresses, there is, it, it feels like you. you you don't learn everything about him, but you get a little closer to to um, to kind of his life, and you also you also are sort of shocked to learn sort of like how many passports he had, and you know the U.S. At one point, I think you're wondering whether he was involved in arms sales. But there's a there's just on that, I thought there was a there was an interesting um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is in the beginning you we see him in silhouette. I mean, we don't want to give anything away about the film. But we see him in silhouette, which I suppose is like probably how you also probably may have encountered him on television. It's like you can there's, there's only he's like he's heavily disguised, like in black. I think there's one of the one of the one of the kind of media images, one of the, the images that have been that have been circulated to the press. Um, you know, it's on screen now where you could where that's what so you you probably recognize his voice. So I just wanna I'm just curious like what it was like to grow up um, as a child as a, of, of a political exile. And I want to add to this because I think there's another element which you said at the beginning, uh, making a film about your maternal grandfather, which is also your mother is uh, the daughter of um, Imam Harun, who people in South Africa will recognize as a political imam from the, the, the late 1960s who was sort of associated with the PAC, um, well, let me, let me say PAC adjacent, um, so the, you know, this is this is kind of heavy to grow up in that kind of mm. the, to grow up like that in a family that is so political. Even as you say, mm. you don't know much about what is going on with your dad, but you're growing up in I, I would say in, in a heavy sort of heavy political like heavy political family. True. I can 
imagine what that could be like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's true actually, but it never felt like that. It never felt like it was heavy in a way because uh, my mom is a very lighthearted woman. I mean, she left when she was 18. Her father was killed, nine, she was 19. And she never really, she never came back to Cape Town to live. Um, and so she remained this kind of teenager in a way, right? Emotionally, I think, to some extent. And um, the reason it didn't feel heavy was because these are two cultures as well, right? Very quite rich Cape Malay culture, which involves food and kind of being together and it's kind of ways of speaking and being and this kind of Libyan Arab culture also involves food and um, ways of kind of uh, being intimate with each other. And so I think that's why it was quite colorful, I guess, in a way, I guess is kind of an Orientalist term, right? It's like the colorful East, um, Eastern cultures, but they were colorful, like super colorful. And so in London, in a place which is not so colorful, right? There was all this kind of life in a way. So we, it wasn't really heavy in terms of that, always talking about politics or anything like that. I, ne I didn't grow up politically inclined. I was kind of, and I was also trying to find out who I was as a Londoner, right? So I'm 15 in 1990. This is like the end of, you know, the um, acid house era, uh, you know, hip hop, it's kind of grow, taking on new forms. There's music changes, drum and bass, house, all these kind of different kind of styles going on and aesthetics going on in London. I was, I think, more interested in that than politics, right? Also, you know, you have conservative and labor governments who don't speak to you as youth. So I never really felt they spoke to me. Um, I think maybe I also felt that the British politics was kind of dull in comparison to where my parents, you know, what they're involved in and what they're doing. So I guess in that way, I wasn't politically involved. I had political opinions and I had kind of a stance on things, um, but not really in terms of that kind of British politics, I guess. So, yeah, I don't, yeah, grow, that's, uh, I guess growing up wasn't heavy. Right. It's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting you say growing up wasn't heavy and like a lot of that heaviness and stuff you're, reckoning with now so for example you know sean was mentioning earlier there's this exchange you have with your father asking him if he was ever an arms dealer and there's other aspects of his life as an exile that you learn about the fact that he was exchanging information with the british police the fact that there were some connections of the national liberation uh, national salvation front with, with baghdad um, at the same point gaddafi is also collaborating with some of these entities so, you know, at this point, when it comes to, you know, uh, wrestling with those exile politics, which are a little bit more sort of muddied and, and heavier than it might have seemed growing up, what has that experience been like? Uh, what, understanding that or understanding that whole space. I, I mean, I think at some point it was kind of a badge of honor, as I think, at school, you know, it's kind of a cool thing to have. Like my dad would tell us, you know, my dad would say, don't, don't say you're Libyan to your friends, right? So, you know, say you're South African, um, so as not to draw attention. So, um, yeah, I mean, discovering it all. So my, my grandfather is someone who I, I didn't meet, right? 
And I think the reason why it wasn't heavy as well is because my dad didn't get killed. And he could have, right? I know families who grew up with Libyan families and other Syrian families and Sudanese families whose breadwinners or whose parents' father usually was killed during that time, assassinated. And it scarred them and it really kind of traumatized everyone in the family. So we didn't, I mean, not, we're, it's not that we were lucky, it's that we had that kind of fortune, for we were fortunate not to have had that trauma in our family. So um, I think that's why I can kind of deal with it, right? Or kind of approach it and ask those questions with my dad because we didn't have that trauma that, that, that many people um, did have, right? And that's kind of also the thing that's not really spoken about, I think in the film as well, is that there were people who, who lost their, you know, the, the, the risk was high. No. So, I mean, I want to I wanna keep with this. I mean, there are these awkward, sometimes amusing exchanges that you have with both of your parents on these questions when you ask your mother if she was aware of your dad's activities and you also ask your, your dad about whether there was any risk to the family and he, he sort of maintains that, you know, you were able to mostly live a normal life. So you, you would say that's, that's true for the most part. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I mean, we did have kind of normal lives. You know? It allowed us to explore and become who, I guess, who we are today as in terms of me and my siblings. Um, yeah, I didn't, never felt anything was out of place, but I knew he was kind of involved in this thing against Libya and Gaddafi was kind of the enemy, but yeah. I have to say when you're, when you speak to your mom, um, I love that scene also. Like there was so many. That was particularly funny because um, Wood and I were talking about this beforehand. She hasn't lost her accent. She, <laughs> it's true. She's still, she's still very much like I was like, yo, that sounds like my mom over there. It's like, <laughs> like an auntie um, from Cape Town. I hope she she she, yeah. she she takes that that comment by me if she ever listens to this. <laughs> with no, the, I'm going to send it to them tomorrow. Yeah, that it comes with it comes with love, you know, because I have yeah, yeah, yeah. my mom sometimes. But I, the the other the question just to go back to your to kind of exile uh, and and you know, your dad being involved in politics and I think the film definitely uh, gets into some of this. But did, could your dad anticipate what was coming? Because I think exile is sometimes very lonely. Um, you know, it, it's like why am I going to millions of meetings, getting on planes, speaking to people, having demos, and is he? Is he, you know, is, is he sort of also anticipating, also, you know, moving in and out of political movements, breaking up with with certain ideas and 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 and, and organizations? Throughout that, did he did he always did he have a sense that one day? I mean, I suppose you have to have that feeling. Yeah, one, well, like, that Libya would be free. Yeah, that Gaddafi would be gone. Yeah. yeah, I think it's two different things, isn't it? He wanted. The kind of Libya being free and Gaddafi being gone was the dream, right? And then when he was gone, it wasn't about people being free. It was about this idea of freedom, basically being doing whatever you want to do, right? So um, yeah, well, for a while, yeah, sure, my dad had this hope that they would help get rid of Gaddafi, but uh, I think, yeah, there were, I think there was at some point, I think during the nineties. Early 2000s, he kind of thought, "Now this is it, done." Especially when 
Saif uh, Gaddafi's son was kind of coming up and he was grooming him to become this, you know, to take over, right? So, so I thought then at that point, my dad probably thought, now this is it now. And it's going to stay like that. So maybe he was started to let go earlier. But then it, during those 2000s and before this kind of Arab Spring moment, there was this renewed energy, you know, and, and it wasn't from him. And it wasn't from his kind of movement. It was from inside Libya. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of, of, of his movement, and you, you touched on this earlier, um, if, if your father could run Libya, let's say, if he had that, <laughs> what, would, what would his program be? Because he, you know, you describe him as, yeah. thing, you know, belonging to this sort of nationalist, Islamist political origin, which is in, in counterposed to the sort of, um, the Arab socialism of, 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 of Nasser and Gaddafi's, I mean, what, what does that ideology mean? How does your father understand it? Well, I think he, um, so he has always kind of been progressive, a progressive guy, right? And an open, not forward, not necessarily forward thinking, but embracing of kind of the, the democratic. So he, during the 80s and that whole time I think he spent in London, in the UK and in the West, he um, learned about civil society, right? Which there wasn't in, the, in Libya. Uh, and so he started, he understood democracy in a certain way, but at the same time, deeply kind of uh, uh, linked to his religious understanding of the world, right? An Islamic kind of outlook. And what does that look like? I don't know how those two marry but I think that was it, to, to, to have kind of something that wasn't fascist, that wasn't dictatorial, but democratic with some kind of, yeah, with definitely with an Islamic underpinning. So, you know, that's a whole discussion about what Sharia is uh, and how can it kind of coexist. So I think that's what he would envision. But he would, yeah, he, he was never kind of communist or extreme left or, uh, extremely like right-wing Islamic either, right? So, yeah, I think a balance of those two, yeah, whatever gives, that would look like. It gives an indication of that kind of the balance between um, sort of if you well, not let me not say the balance, but the marrying of kind of Islam and democracy it gives that yeah. right near the beginning where he talks about kind of what were they, what what did they want to achieve um, in Libya. Yeah. I mean, then there's, I think that, that we, we cannot, you know, we have to ask this because this is also history and people know this. Um, we know the current state of Libya. We know that, you know, multiple entities are ruling it, um, and that the reports out of Libya, and you sort of, I think you've alluded to some of this already, is, is one of kind of like, you know, it's, 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 it's violence, it's, it's mm -hmm. almost everyone to themselves. And your dad speaks of one day, um, going back and, and, and making a contribution, but like all, I mean, like all of us, that time passes, right? And he's an he, yeah. he he's an older man. Let's put it like this: he'll love this part if I say it. He's an older <laughs> man now. Have you have you ask him about whether he's 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 ready to go of this, like ready to go of that mm. that dream? And I think I'm saying this also because in some sense. There is, a, you know, there's a certain kind of sadness one feels when you watch it because he's a very idealistic man. He's, 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 he has a certain joy about him, but at the same time, yeah. he's dealing with is also like sadness about a place that 
that, you know, has almost in a way also gotten away from him, something that he yeah. helped fix. Um, yeah. You talk about that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I, uh, I think he, I don't think he's let go. He hasn't definitely hasn't let go of Libya. He's kind of still very much kind of deeply committed to the to the country and to his family who are there. Uh, um, but I, this is like the he's in his seventies, so this is like the that phase of life where you kind of have to embrace and allow, but at the same time you can't let go of. Um, so. He definitely hasn't let go, but he's, I guess, have to come to terms, right, with being patient, more patient, I guess, than he has been, uh, uh, and to have hope that there will be some kind of good outcome at some point. But it's very hard to predict or to analyze why that isn't happening now or when it would happen or all those things. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, the indication that it's, so far gone is that we don't hear about Libya anymore in the in the news, right? Mm -hmm. Quite sporadically we hear hear about it because the civil war has been going on for since 2014, and nothing's really given way, right? Every now and then you hear something, but the fact that we don't hear about it much means it's in a bad state, right? And I mean, for you, what 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 is Libya? Is it something that you've let go of is something you've ever held on to. You mentioned earlier that your father used to advise you when you were younger not to mention that you're Libyan. You had to identify as yeah, it's true. So, yeah, what? How does? How do you relate to Libya? Yeah, because from him, there's that literal saying, "Let go," isn't it? He's saying, "Let yeah. go of that place." It's not. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of always had this weird relationship with the place because it was always by proxy, right, through him. And it was always we never we didn't learn Arabic, right? So even when I did go to visit in 2011, it was also still quite foreign because I didn't have the language of communication fully. Um, and so it's a place I hold dear in my heart, you know. And I have uh, I know stories of family and you know just my dad's connection really to the place. But I have very good friends who are Libyan who grew up uh, like me in London and similar experiences with their parents. Uh, so I kind of, my experience of Libya through them as well. When I started making this film, at the beginning of the development, I was invited to go on a residency with a, an Arab-based, uh, uh, Lebanon-based uh, film kind of group called DocMed, which would take us developing our films, a bunch of us filmmakers around the Middle East over, over a period of a year, like three weeks, right? So we all, and so hanging with these Arabs, making films about themselves and their own countries, Tunisians, Moroccans, other different kinds of people, Egyptians, I actually during that, and while making this film, I started to feel more of my Libyanness, right? Whatever that is, come through, right? Kind of being exposed to these people. So something I didn't grow up with. I didn't grow up with uh, kind of this, uh, I guess, very, uh, I grew up with a very mixed community. So there were Arabs there, but there were lots of other people, all in English usually, but I didn't grow up with that kind of musical culture, right? And those kind of things that everyone understands through the language. Uh, so only during the making of this film, I kind of felt like I got closer to that side of myself. 
just quickly, um, you live in Cape Town. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually remember a long time ago, I interviewed you at your house. Uh, I don't know if you yeah. still and I came over. Um, yeah. But is, how does Cape Town fit into all of this now? Because is Cape Town <laughs> that place where you, where you, where you think, because you've been there now for a while, like, you know, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Might be, this might be, is, I actually wrote down, uh, is this the place, um, where somebody who's the son of Libyans and the son of South Africans grew <laughs> up in London. And I say that when I say South Africans and Libyans, I mean it, you know, like in a broader way. So is, is, Cape, is Cape Town that place where, where you can kind of connect it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was always had strong connection to the place. And then since making the film, my Imam film about my grandfather, uh, I kind of, I, I, I became more part of the community. Um, and then at the same time, becoming part of the filmmaking community in the country and contributing to it, you know, you know in, a, in a positive way uh, and, you know, being part of this whole, this whole network. So, yeah, definitely Cape Town. I wouldn't go back to London if that's kind of what you're asking me. <laughs> I wouldn't go back. To, I don't you know, I, my, I mean, my family is here, you know. Um, now, there, there's some beautiful scenes in the film and we don't, we, you know, when, when, when we have filmmakers over, we always worry that we're giving away too much of what's in this film, but there's some really beautiful uh, kind of emotional, poignant scenes that are unexpected when they, when they arrive and I don't want to, I, I want people to go see this film. I think it's an excellent film. Um, and it's a really well, let's, let's while, while you're there, let's plug Encounters. Yeah, it's going to show so it. the next place. The next place to see it. The next place to see it is shown at Hot Docs in Canada, um, and next it will be showing at Encounters, which is in Cape Town in South Africa. It's a great documentary film festival. Yeah. In fact, we will run a couple of other reviews of films that are showing at that same festival, and we've actually run a few already. Um, so yeah, definitely, this this was wonderful talking to you, Farid. And thank, thank you, you very thank much you. for joining nice us. Very excellent. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Khaled. Yeah, so uh, welcome back to, to Proper Live. Um, as I said at the outset of today's program, this today is known as Africa Day. Um, there's actually, uh, which is the 25th, it commemorates the day on the 25th of May, 1963, when in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Ayli Selassie convened a meeting of um, 32, representing 32 African nations. And there they signed the document to bring into being what is what became known as the Organization of African Unity, uh, which, which had a mixed record, but I think most, probably its most important contribution was its role in, uh, in uh, liberation struggles for those countries that were still um, in the, you know, the former Portuguese, the then Portuguese colonies. Uh, but also um, in, in settler, white settler regimes, South Africa, Rhodesia, etc. Um, and that, that led to the formation of that organization, which we now know as the African Union. I would recommend a, uh, an essay actually that um, Sasson Kem Simang, who was one of our guests a couple of weeks ago on South African Freedom Day, uh, wrote about um, Africa Day, a sort of critical essay. With this, I would like to thank our guests, um, Odysseus Serinja. Cedric Brown um, and Khalid Samas uh, 
for coming onto the show today, which had, I think, a bit of that sort of Pan-African theme. I mean, we didn't, we'd forgotten that it was, <laughs> it was the day when we planned the episode, but it seems to have worked out. Um, Will Shoki could not be here. Um, we wish him well, and hopefully he'll be, we'll see him next week again. He'll be here next week. Um, there's the article, Africa's Big Day, Africa's Day is, is for big men. Um, and then finally, I want to thank our producer, Antoinette Engel. And so that's a uh, goodbye from me till next week. Son Jacobs, I'm signing off. Um, and uh, yeah, and also I'm super happy that Liverpool <laughs> came back um, and that uh, George Weah's son is in Africa, is a, is a, is a league, uh, he's, a, he's a French national, he's a French national champion. Um, Akimi is a national champion in Italy. Um, and I think Mendy from Senegal, no, Mendy from Senegal is, is hopefully going to be a European champion. In any case, with that, um, goodbye. There was too much football there at the end. Goodbye.